So I know it's a little bit difficult uh, to follow what I'm doing because there's long lapses in between my messages, but I've been in Ephesians. I'm up to Ephesians 4, I believe. And uh, so I'm going to try to get halfway through Ephesians today, and uh, we'll see how successful that is. Um, Ephesians 4, first verse As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the hope when you were called, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Lord God Almighty, we thank you, Lord. Thank you that you've kept us. We thank you that you don't give up on us even when we fall flat on our face. We ask you, Lord, that you would bless us today with your presence. Open your word to us and speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So that opening sentence there in chapter 4 where Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. That little sentence right there marks a turning point in the book, book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, Paul has started out with theology. He's been teaching theology. He's been kind of up in the clouds in the ivory towers. And now he gets practical. Now he turns practical. I like to say that that the rubber meets the road at this point. This is where it all takes place. Theology is great. I love theology. Theology is uh is uh theology is exciting. Theology is, expands our mind. But if we don't put it into use, it doesn't mean anything. It's just it's just ideas. It has to get practical at some point. It has to get into our life to the point where it has something to do with how we're living life. I read somebody said that this shift that uh, Paul makes here in verse 1 is like described from creed to conduct. So we have a creed. We have something that we say we believe in, that we live by, that conducts our life. And now it comes down to what do we do with it? How do we live that out? Uh, we all know people who claim to be something, whatever it is, and but we, we know them, and and uh, you know we know that it's not real. We know that they're a fake. We know that uh, what they say is not what they do, and we regard them that way, don't we? We we know that what they're saying is not true for them. We don't want to be Christians like that. There's too many people out there who they'll they'll say that. They'll say, you know, Christians are the biggest hypocrite on the planet and they're right. It's true. We don't want to be like that. We want to be Christians who people will say that guy is a Christian and I can tell he's a Christian or she by the way that they live. And uh and you get a reputation in your community, don't you? People will, people will know that you're an honest person, that they can trust you. People will say, you know, man, 
you know, I, I, I don't, I don't agree with everything they believe in, but they do. And you have that reputation of being true to what you say you believe. And that's, that's what Paul is calling us to here. He says, live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. That Greek word there, uh, worthy, if you look at it in the Greek, it says, it, the word is axios, which is that idea of weight. So that English word, which we use as axiom, it's actually a mathematical word, and uh, I'll just be really honest with you. I'm not a mathematician. I wouldn't know this except for the fact that I read it in a book, okay? Axiom means to be of equal weight. So you have a mathematical equation. Those of you who are good at math, you know you do one thing to one side. You do the same thing to the other side, and it balances out. That's the term that Paul is using. We want to balance it. So we want our theology to balance with the way that we're living our life. To, 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 we want our theology to balance with our conduct, the way that we live it out. So we have, we have what we've learned, and now we're going to apply it. So how do we walk worthy of the blessings that we've received through Christ? How do we do that? You know, it's easy to say we need to live like a Christian, but it gets really complicated after you say that, doesn't it? It's not easy. Sounds easy. It's not as not as easy as it sounds. So how do we work worthy of that calling? The immediate concern there in chapter 4, um, Paul offers two ways of doing this. First of all, by walking in unity. I've talked a lot about the unity of the church. It's just like unity of a family. Unity in a family... Uh, should be a given, shouldn't it? You're all related. You all live together. Children grew up in the family. We know what we, we know how we do things. We know how we live. Unity should be easy, right? How many of us can say that our family is completely united all the time? That there are no arguments. That there are no disagreements. That people don't see things from a different point of view. We all know that that's the reality of a family, isn't it? We want to say, oh, we're all on the same page as a family. Uh, that page is in a really big book. <laughs> There's lots of pages. And we're always not on the same page. We see things differently. Church is the same way, too. You know, our church should be a family. Our little group right here, those of you who uh, made it through the snow this morning... Um, you know, I, I recognize your faces. I know you're here most of the time. And, uh, and, and if you came to me and you said, Pastor, I, I need to talk, I would say my door is always open. You know? But I know that even though we're a church family, we don't always see things the same way. Life is not always the same for all of us. You know, I get phone calls every now and then, and, and those phone calls usually involve some kind of, of a really serious crisis. You know, somebody has, somebody has a terminal diagnosis or something like that. Uh, that's, 
That's when people reach out. That's when people need our family to stand with them. That's what Paul's talking about. Paul's not saying that there's never disagreements. If you remember back to when I was going through Corinthians, you know, the whole thing, that whole book to the Corinthians involved problems. That church had problems. That church had divisions. Uh, there were Jewish Christians. There were, there were, uh, there were Gentile Christians. They didn't get along. They didn't mix. There were wealthy Christians. There were poor Christians. They didn't mix. They didn't get along. There were all kinds of problems. But does that mean they were not a family? No. No, it didn't. The reason is, is because God established that family. God established that church. God establishes. God puts the bar there for unity. You know, the bar for becoming a Christian is really low. That bar is really low. You don't have to know hardly anything about being a Christian to become a Christian. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Most people can do that if they do believe. If they believe that Jesus is the Lord, they can, they can say it. Or maybe they can even go through baptism and they can take that step that public step of saying, I am a Christian. That bar is really low. But God established the bar for unity of the church, and it's way up here. It's really high. He set that bar. God set the bar for being a Christian too. But uh, the point is that the bar for unity in the church is really high. And I don't really know if I've ever been a part of a church that met that bar. There's, seems like there's always something. There's always something that creates uh, disunity or disagreement. So Paul's addressing that. He says, he says, uh, walk in unity and then walk in purity. So the focus on unity is in uh, verse 1 through 6 and then verses 7 through 16. And there are three things in that, uh, in those verses that he discusses. He, he talks about the character that brings out the Christian unity. He talks about the divine origin of Christian unity, that God established that. And then he talks about the charge to build Christian unity. So there's this character that brings about Christian unity. So the unity that Paul's talking about begins with character. He says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. You know, the people who bring unity to a place are, first of all, humble and gentle, aren't they? They help bring unity. If somebody has a caustic uh, personality, it's, it's kind of hard for them to bring unity. And, you know, sometimes we pull that off better than others, you know. I had someone approach me the other day, and, and he says, Wow, you were really aggressive, you know, when you were talking about that thing. And I was like, Who, me? I would never do that. Well, apparently I did. I didn't intend to. But, you know, sometimes I can come across that way. So sometimes we pull it off and sometimes we don't. It's something we need to work on. It's something that has to do with allowing the Holy Spirit to operate through us. 
And, and sometimes we do that better than other times. Sometimes it's easier than other times. You know, humility in ancient Greek, the ancient uh, Roman world was seen as a negative. Humility was something that slaves were. It wasn't something that you wanted to be. You didn't want to be humble. The, the, the men, particularly the men in that society who were admired were referred to as mega sold or great sold men. We would call them an alpha male these days. An alpha male is somebody who, you know, comes in and takes charge. They're the leader. Don't question the leader. You just do what you're told. Those are the, that's an alpha male. An alpha male is kind of a man's man. An alpha male is somebody that other men will respect and look up to. That's not what Paul's describing here. Paul is not describing an alpha male. Paul is describing somebody who would be seen as probably being fairly passive. Not completely passive because, you know, we know that we have to step into whatever it is God's put in front of us, we have to step into that with a degree of confidence to get it done. But we're depending on the Lord. We're not depending on our own capabilities to do that. So when Paul there, he he combines humility with gentleness. Uh, some translations of the Bible refer to it as meekness. Meekness is a difficult word because we don't use that word very much these days anymore. When was the last time you referred to somebody as meek? You probably haven't. So it's a little bit difficult to know what that word meek means because meekness or gentleness is not to be confused with weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness has been described as strength under control. Strength under control. It's sort of like, and I know that this is maybe not helpful for some of you who have not been around animals very much, but, um, you know, maybe you've watched a movie with somebody riding a stallion who is big and powerful, but the rider has complete control of them. That's meekness. There's strength, there's power, but it's being controlled by the Holy Spirit. So somebody who is meek is not weak. Christians are not a doormat. You are not to be a doormat. God never intended you to be walked over by people. God never intended you to be walked on. God never intended for you to be looked down on. Because of weakness. That's not the intention at all. You know, you you look at the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul exemplifies that meekness. The Apostle Paul was not a, a weak person. If you look at what he went through uh, when he was preaching the gospel everywhere, the, the, the things he went through, a weak person would never survive that. And a, 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 a weak person would never stand up to people like Paul did. Jesus himself, you know, people want to say, oh, Jesus loved everybody. Jesus would never speak poorly about anybody. Jesus would never 
tell anybody that, that their lifestyle is not good or that they have a sinful lifestyle. You know, it's kind of, kind of, uh, even in churches, they don't want to talk about having a sinful lifestyle. Well, let me tell you something. Jesus talked about it. Jesus called the Pharisees snakes. The Pharisees were the most pious religious people of that day. They were, they were, as far as religion goes, they were at the top of the pile. Most people would not dare say that a Pharisee was not the most righteous person in the community. Jesus said, you are self-righteous. He said, you, you have elevated yourself. He said, he said, you are like a tomb, a whitened tomb full of dead men's bones. That's what you are. A weak person's not going to do that. Remember when Jesus went and he overthrew the tables of the money changers? What did he do first? Can you remember? Can you remember what he did first? He did something. He saw the money changers there. He saw that they were cheating people. They were doing this at the temple. It says he went and made a whip. We're talking premeditated violence here, folks. That's not the action of a weak person. He went and made a whip, and he whipped them, and he overturned the tables. He threw them out. That's not the actions of a weak person. That's the actions of a very strong person. So gentleness, meekness, it's not weakness. Jesus used Both of those words to describe himself. He said, I am gentle or meek and I am humble in heart. But he had a steel character, Jesus did. Jesus, in respect to himself, he had a resolve that he would not take retribution on his enemies. He would not. He had every reason to do so. He was God. He had a resolve. I'm not taking out revenge on my enemies. I'm not doing that. God's going to do that. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and they said, they said, save yourself. You know, in some ways they were mocking him because they didn't think he could do it. But there were some who thought he could. It was his choice to stay there. Just remember that. Jesus chose to stay on that cross. He could have, he could have called down lightning. He could have done many things. And he could have taken himself off of that cross. But he chose not to. That's a part of that steely character that Jesus had. And then uh, his ability to forgive Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Forgiveness is not easy, you know. Uh, forgiveness, you know, you'll hear me talk about that every now and then. You'll hear Pastor Mike talk about forgiveness too. Forgiveness is something that, um, you know, if you come to me and you say, man, i got to forgive somebody, and uh, and I, what if I said, oh, fine, uh, just say these words, you know. 
whoever it is, I, I forgive you for whatever you did to me. I forgive you. Say the words. Okay, now you're done. Did you really forgive? Have you forgiven? You said the words. But the question is, what's in your heart? Because you've got to forgive out of your heart. This is not, this is not a simple verbal thing. Actually, the forgiveness has to come out of your heart before it comes out of your mouth. And that's not as easy as it sounds sometimes. When somebody has done something to you that has hurt you deeply, and you are wounded, it's not as easy as it sounds just to forgive. We know we have to forgive. It's a commandment. It's an imperative. We have to forgive. If we want to be forgiven, we need to forgive. And when you look at what people have forgiven, of course, you know, the ultimate one is Jesus. Jesus forgave everything. Jesus gave his life. Jesus took the weight of the sin of the world upon himself to forgive That's a high bar, isn't it? That's a high bar. So that means, what that means is, you know, that person, (laughs) that person who was rude to you a couple days ago, and you're kind of hanging on to that because you know them, and maybe you're kind of friends with them, but they were rude to you. I had this happen myself. I'm speaking, I'm talking about myself here. You gotta forgive them. You know, you wanna hang on to that. And that's a simple little thing. But what about something that somebody has done that was a big thing? You know, betrayal. You were betrayed by them. That's a little bit harder. That's the kind of a thing that you gotta have the Lord, that, that's a God-sized thing. You know, we can't do that on our own. Don't try to do it on your own. That's a God-sized problem. You need God's help with that. And don't think that you're done just because you said the words. Make sure it's in your heart. Because God looks at the heart. God looks on the heart. He doesn't look on the outside of us. Thank God some of us don't look that good, you know. But God looks in the heart. What's in your heart? Is it clean? Or are there black spots there? God can help you take care of that. Those who are, who are humble are gentle, patient. Stand with one another in love. Stand like a steel post that can't be moved. You stand with your Christian friends, your Christian family, you stand with one another, whatever's coming. You know, you might be living in the middle of a typhoon, figuratively speaking. But if you have a Christian brother or sister with you, you can withstand it. And that's character. That's, that's character. That is Gentleness, that is patience. You stand with one another out of love. 
We're to be patient, not short-tempered. That one, uh, men, men, this is this kind of a man thing, isn't it? Uh, maybe women too, but mostly a man thing, being short-tempered. You know, we get irritable. Life is coming at us from every direction. And we're just like, I can't take one more thing piled on. I am up to here. That's when we need the Holy Spirit to help us be patient and and not short-tempered. Literally, that word literally means being long-tempered. That's not really a word, is it? Being long-tempered? But that's what it is. Forbearing one another. That means giving one another grace. Giving one another, uh, uh, you know, cut cut some slack for them. You know, they, they come in, they come in, they talk to you. Maybe they're short-tempered with you. And that makes you react. But cutting your brother or sister some slack, saying, you know, they're probably having a bad day. I'm going to cut them some slack here. I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to be what I should be and be long-tempered. Have sincere love. Uh, chapter one, verse 22. Have sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. Again, from the heart. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Then he says, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Where's the repetition in there? What does he talk about over and over and over again? Jesus said, you will know them by the love they have one for another. It's the it's love. It's love that we have for our brothers. That love transcends differences. You know, some of you in here are are uh, some of you in here are more academically inclined. You know, there probably are a couple of people, not very many, because math is not popular. You know, but maybe there's a couple of you who really like math. There's a couple of you who don't want anything to do with math. You're a motorcycle guy. You know, your thing is, let's go out and ride motorcycles. Or uh, maybe your thing is guns. And then there's someone else who doesn't even own any guns. You don't care about guns. You want to you wanna do something else. My point is, there's lots of different varieties of people. Lots of different types of work that you do. Lots of different ways that you want to spend your time. But love transcends all of that. I can love you not because of who you are or what you do. I can love you because you're my brother in Christ. And that's what he's talking about. Jesus said, you will know them by the love. You know, I've, I've, I've been in churches where there wasn't a whole lot of love. There was a whole lot of people trying to control one another. There was a whole lot of people trying to, to direct, you know, the, the phrase is, uh, too many chiefs and not enough Indians. That's probably an old remark now or an old, old thing, but, but, uh, but there wasn't a lot of love. You know, if there's a lot of love, what you're gonna have is everybody wants to serve. Everybody wants to 
help out the other person. You know, not not uh, what can I be in charge of or not what can I make decisions for. It's how can I help you? And you know, I know people like that. I know people who are, you know, if I if I have a if I got a problem and I really need somebody to help me out with that, I know who I can call because they love me. They love me not for what I can do for them. I may, I may not be able to do anything for them. But they love me because I'm a brother in Christ. And that transcends everything. That love even transcends those times when I'm a little cranky and short-tempered. Or maybe, you know, maybe they say, wow, Scott's on one today. But the love transcends that, doesn't it? What just happened? Okay, am I still there? I guess I touched the mic. Don't do that. So imagine different types of people, you know, different types of people. There's uh, there's nervous people. Sometimes I'm like that. I get really wound up. There's calm people. There's people who like academic stuff. There's musical people, of which I'm really not. Um, there's there's different, you know, we, we all look different. Some of you are are tall and thin. Some of us are short and round. Some of us have uh, athletic capabilities, of which I don't have. Uh, some of us, some of us uh, don't have any physical capabilities at all because we have problems with our body. The, our, the love, the love that God expects us to have one for another transcends all of that. It has nothing to do with it. We're not talking about admiring somebody for their ability. We're talking about loving somebody because we're all a part of the family of God. And we love each other because of that. And then Paul talks about the divine origin of Christian unity. So, uh, verses 4 to 6, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. There's one Lord. One faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So those verses are teaching us that our unity is rooted in the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we're taught, we are not taught to establish this unity. This is a huge difference. This unity that I've been talking about is not something that we do. It's something that God does. God does this, and we submit ourselves into it. You know, if, if, if a man were to establish that unity, then if that man spiritually fell flat on their face, that unity would collapse, wouldn't it? Or what would happen if a man established that unity and they died? It's all gone. Uh, that that that's a problem with uh, that is a problem with something I'm I'm going to call uh, I'm going to call pastor worship. You know, the pastor is so revered that if 
if they do something that is, uh, you know, unacceptable for a pastor to do, then the church collapses. Or if they die, the church collapses. People have put their faith on that man. They haven't put their faith on God. This unity that, that I've been talking about, that Paul was talking about, is established by God, not somebody. And we fit into that unity. We submit ourselves into that unity. And that unity then then gives us the strength that we have. So there's the person, there's the person and the work of the Holy Spirit that brings unity. There's one body, there's one spirit. So the Holy Spirit creates this unified body of Christ, and we're members of that. We're parts of that. Uh, he says we're all baptized, it's from 1 Corinthians 12, we're all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greek or slave or free. We're all given one Spirit. We're all given one Spirit. Uh, back in Corinthians, uh, there were, some of the Christians were, trying to separate themselves. They were saying, well, there's one baptism for the Greeks. There's another baptism for the Jews. There's, you know, there's separate, you know, essentially separate churches is what they were wanting, separate Christians. And Paul is saying, no, there's not, there's nothing separate. We're all in this together. We don't separate ourselves out because of our background. You come out of whatever you were in. Some people are nothing. They become a Christian. And we're all in this together. There's no separation. We all have one baptism because there's one God. There's one Holy Spirit. There's one Jesus Christ. And those three are God. Those three make up the the triune God the essence of God, and we're all in that together. There's no separation. So there's unity in that. We don't say, oh, uh, you know, you, you, uh, you were a Buddhist and now you became a Christian, so now you're a Buddhist Christian. It's like people calling, calling people uh, uh, Filipino-American. You know, let's not forget where you came from. I don't even see it that way. You know, we're Americans. We're Americans. You're Christians. You're not a Buddhist Christian. You're not a Hindu Christian. You're a Christian. You're not a Jewish Christian. Um, some people, they, uh, never mind. I don't want to go there. It's not on my list. Stick to the list. So this explains why we respond to the way we do when we meet a brother somewhere. You meet a brother or a sister somewhere. Maybe you're in a different town somewhere. Maybe you're in a different country. I don't know why that keeps doing that. Um, but you meet a Christian somewhere else, and immediately you have a connection. Have you ever had that? Maybe you're just in another town. You meet somebody. you got an immediate connection. And then you find out that you're both Christians. And you got a brother. But that connection 
That connection is because you're Christians. You have that, you have that connection. It's a, it's a part of who you are. Being a Christian is a, is a part of who you are. So there's the person of Christ, um, and his work in ministering that, in that unity. Says, just as you were called to one hope, when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then 1 Corinthians says, there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Just as our Lord, he creates one faith because he is the object and the focus of our belief. Because of our faith, we all have participated in one baptism into the name of the Lord Jesus. So that passage is not presenting or that passage is presenting one shared baptism with one God, one faith, and one hope. And that hope, that hope is based on the return of Jesus Christ. That hope is based on the return of Jesus Christ. So there is the person of the Father in his work, and uh, we have that shared hope of the return of Jesus Christ, and we'll be a part of that. So, that unity is all based on the Lord. That unity is eternal. That unity is unbreakable. You know, you can break your relationship with somebody. You can say, I'm not, I'm not friends with you anymore. I hate you. I don't want to see you. I don't even want to hear your name. You know, there are some people who have an experience in a church, unfortunately, it's the same thing. You know, they walk out of the church and they say, I don't want anything to do with that church anymore. I don't want to see anybody from that church. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to think about them. You can do that. You can do that. But the unity of the church is still there. Because the unity of that church is based on the Lord. You know, we look at the condition of the church these days and and it looks really fragmented. And you're saying, I don't see the unity I don't, I don't see anything that we have in common with that church across town. They don't even believe even remotely like what we do. That's, that's, uh, that's kind of a sad state of affairs. But the unity of the church, there is the church and there is the real church. There are some people who are just playing church. And I've made the comment to people, I've said, you know, the older I get, the more, uh, the more, uh, of a bottom line kind of a person I am. You know, if you want to preach something, show me chapter and verse. You want to tell me there's some elemental thing that we have to do to be a Christian, show me chapter and verse. Because there's a whole lot of people out there, there are a whole lot of churches out there who are teaching things that are not scriptural. You need to know your Bible. You need to know your Bible. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb here because this is this has come up uh, from from CSN over the last couple of weeks. We've had callers calling in asking what we think about that series uh, called The Chosen. And so one of our guys here has spent probably a week or more watching it and 
checking out how biblical it is. Apparently, I haven't seen it, but apparently it's a really great story that falls under the heading of historical fiction. And the problem with that is that if you watch that series and you get sucked into it, which is fine, uh, but you don't know your Bible, you don't know what parts of that series are biblical and what parts are not. You don't necessarily know where the fiction comes in because I'm telling you, there's a whole lot of fiction in there. There's a whole lot of stuff that when I look at my Bible, that never happened. That didn't happen. And, and uh, you know, I had a, guy, <laughs> had a guy ask me, sitting in my office, he says, well, so what do you think? Do you think the whole series is heresy? And I said, well, I'm not going to go that far as to say it's heresy. The parts that are biblically accurate are, are great. They're, they're great, but the problem is, is if somebody doesn't really know their Bible, or maybe they're not a Christian at all, they don't know which parts of it were made up. That's, that's the problem with that. So, Paul says, Paul says, uh, keep every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Make haste. Do your utmost to keep unity with the Spirit. He says this is urgent. This is urgent to keep unity with the Spirit. And again, that's something that's not really easy to do, is it? Sounds easy enough. You know, it's kind of like when something difficult happens to you and people come up and they give you a hug and they say, oh, just give it to the Lord. God makes everything work together for good. They forget the tag end of that verse to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Give it to the Lord. We do, don't we? Don't we give it to the Lord? We know as Christians that sometimes there's nothing we can do. We have to give it to the Lord. It's out of our hands. But that doesn't mean that you don't hurt. That doesn't mean that that it's not difficult. Because it is. It is difficult. Having that connection with the Holy Spirit helps us through those times. And we have to make an effort for that. We have to make an effort to do that. We have to put ourselves in the place where the Holy Spirit can talk to us, where we can hear it, it can give us guidance, can work us through that. And the reality is some of those things take time. I hate that. I hate that when somebody says that, oh, it's just going to take time. I don't want it to take time. I want patience now. By the way, don't ever pray for patience. It's a bad thing to do. So I'm just going to finish this up here. And uh, I don't know, apparently I'm in verse 3. So make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It's to be a peacemaker. You know, peacemaker's characteristic is honesty. Do you know how difficult honesty is? Maybe you do know how difficult honesty is. Someone comes up to you and then they share something with you and, and you know that the problem is with them. And you need to tell them that. And they're your friend. And you don't want to tell them that. 
But honesty, to be a peacemaker, is to be honest about the situation. You know, sometimes you have to recognize that there is no peace. Don't lie about there not being peace. Sometimes, sometimes it's a, you know, sometimes it's family. <laughs> Let's be honest. Sometimes it's family and there's no peace. First thing you got to recognize is we got a problem. And you know, when somebody comes to you and they're presenting a problem that exists with a group of people and from their point of view, Everybody has a problem but them? You're probably looking at the problem. We need to do as Christians, we need to be examining ourselves. I figured out this a long time ago when I first started becoming a pastor, and I'm preparing to bring a message. And I'm reading through a book or a chapter. And I am so convicted because I'm like, I have every one of these issues. But you know what? It's much better to be like that than to say, wow, I got this handled. Everybody else has a problem, but I'm good. You know, if you're in that situation, (laughs) you might want to check yourself. You might want to check yourself because when we read scripture, we should be doing self-examination. What does this mean to me? Am I a peacemaker or not? You know, it's, it's much easier for me, much easier for me when people, you know, they come to me and they want to talk about something. The easy thing to do is say, oh yeah, you're right. You're right. It's their problem. They're doing this. They're doing that. Oh, you are such a victim. You know, it's easier to do that. That's the easy thing to do. The hard thing to do is to say, Brother, I love you. And you need to make some adjustments. You need to fix some things. That's, that's being a, that's being a peacemaker. And that's being a brother. You know, if somebody walks up to you, and, uh, and, and their left hand is missing and they're bleeding from their arm profusely. And you looked at them and you said, your arm is just fine. What kind of a brother is that? That's not a brother at all. A brother's going to say, oh my word, we need to get to ER right now. You have a problem. That's the loving thing to do, isn't it? Because if you do nothing, they're probably going to die. So, this all speaks to our... Man, I don't know what is going on here. Um, This all speaks to our our condition. You know, um, somebody who... uh, This was something I wrote. You know, somebody who's not a, a, a... who is not a peacemaker. They see a crack in the wall. They put some plaster over it and, and paint it, but they don't fix, they don't fix the problem. And then when the rain comes, the plaster falls out and the problem's there again. 
Um, we need, we, it's like I said before, we need to be a brother who stands like a steel post beside our brothers. We're there. We're there. We're not going anywhere. It's like, bro, I got your back. No, I'm not going anywhere. That's, that's how we should be. To be a peacemaker is to speak honesty into a situation. And sometimes we're seen as a troublemaker. Sometimes we are. You know, I honestly think probably there's sometimes when they see me coming and like, oh boy, here comes Scott. This guy, nothing but a troublemaker. Look at him, he even looks like a troublemaker. <laughs> I do. I do look like a troublemaker. But I'm not. I'm a marshmallow man inside, so just gave you my secret. The peacemaker is a fighter. Peacemaker's not going to run from a fight. They're there to make peace. But they're driven by the Holy Spirit. So it's not something that they're doing in their own power, in their own strength. As a human being, they're doing it with the presence and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And through that all, they have gentleness and meekness. That's the difference. That's how it's handled. That's how it's handled. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers, sow in peace and raise a harvest of righteousness. I just hope that this could be true for all of us.